innovation has been challenged right the way through history. You know, if you think about uh, just flying across the Atlantic, or you would not think twice now about jumping on an airplane. But, you know, when my father was flying uh, Lockheed Constellations backwards and forwards across the Atlantic in, in the early 1950s, airlines of the day, and we're talking Pan Am, BOAC, they, they were losing one major airline every six weeks. Can you imagine today that happening? We just wouldn't fly. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development as businesses aim for long-term success. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sofion CTO. If you're looking for additional information around new product development or corporate innovation, sign up for Sofion's newsletter where we share news and industry best practices monthly. The fastest way to do this is to go to sofion.com that's S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com and click the sign up and stay informed box. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming back to join us again. We've got a very wonderful guest today, James McFarlane. James is actually the CEO and owns a company called Easy Press, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But James and I have an interesting history. Back in the early days before we were called Sophion, we were called Polydoc, and we merged with a company out of Guilford that was doing some really interesting stuff. Uh, the company was called uh, um, Applied Net, and they were really, before the internet, they were doing search, search engines, search indexing. They were doing some stuff that even to this day, you don't see out there in the world. And so James was kind of around to help us get Sophion started in the earliest of days. And as even as we launched into the invention of our current product accolade, James was there. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. Lovely to see you. You're yeah. looking so much longer, younger than I remember. <laughs> Good. I'm headed in the right direction. You are as well. <laughs> James, where are, you, where are we talking to you from? Where are you located? Actually, because of the pandemic, uh, everybody basically is uh, working from home. But uh, as you know, that, uh, you know, with technology is today and everything in the cloud, actually working from home is easier now than it has ever has been. So I'm actually speaking to you from... Uh, my garden room, which is uh, so with a lovely view out over the South Downs in the, uh, the very south of, of England. We're just a few miles away from the South Coast, about 65, 70 miles from London. That's great. And how's your summer going so far? Well, as of last night with, uh, you know, England getting through to the, uh, the finals of, uh, of the Euros, it's brilliant. <laughs> It's 55 years since uh, we were in the finals of for soccer, you call it in America, football we call it over here. It's 55 years since we were in the finals of anything. So <laughs> the whole nation has stopped, uh, stopped working, uh, including everybody that works for me. <laughs> They're spending all of their time tweeting photographs of uh, pizzas and <laughs> pasta dishes. They're never going to cook again and things like that. So because we've got the Italians on Sunday. It's the last game last night against the, the Danes, which was just brilliant. Is only to go by. It's going to be a, a fun few days. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. It's, it's two great teams. I'm glad some teams are not in it. 
that are always in it, right? So it's nice to see a different makeup. <laughs> it's been a fun. Uh, it's been a fun. We got rid of the Germans a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that's to the sorrow of probably a lot of our listeners. But but there you go. That's that's how it goes. James, uh, you've got a great background, a great history with innovation. Can you share some of your innovation things, your history? How'd you get involved in innovation? Well, Paul, it's a very interesting point. You've got to bear in mind, I am a child of the moon landing generation. So I was 13, going on 14, basically, when you know NASA sent uh, men to the moon and we sat and watched what was going on. So innovation is really part of that makeup. And if you think about what happened then, 10 years before that, the technology involved in actually getting, not only getting men to the moon, but actually landing them and then getting them safely home had, had literally had not been invented. So, you know, we come from a generation basically, which is um, where innovation, I think, is in the blood of everyone of my age. Interesting fact, on the day that um, we sat and um, watched those grainy pictures you know, of the boys basically, status, you know, stepping down from the uh, the LEM. I was actually watching part of that with my grandparents, and they really couldn't comprehend what it was they were actually looking at. And I remember taking my pretty ancient grandmother, uh, standing her up and walking her outside. And on that morning, we had a full moon, basically, in, over the UK. And I pointed to the moon and I said, what you're watching is actually men walking <laughs> on that. I, I remember the look on her face. She looked at me as if I'd said a bad word. <laughs> you know, she could not comprehend how that had gone on, yet she had been watching it. Yet, you know, she was born in 1890 and she told me stories basically of the newspapers reporting the first flight uh, by the Kitty Hawk, you know, uh, Wilbur mm. Wright. You know, that to her was innovation. You know, men hadn't flown before. And here we were watching, you know, 65 years later, you know, men actually walking on the, on the, uh, on the moon. So whole innovation really is about time, you know, as far as I can see. And if just to sort of wind that bit of the story forward, so on the 12th of... Uh, of May 1940, my father, uh, at the age of 18 and uh, one day, joined the RAF. And he learned to fly and went solo, basically, in a biplane, which was made from literally wood and canvas. And he survived the war, you know, 23-year-old uh, squadron leader, what would that be in American terms, a major? you know, having done three tours of operations and stayed in flying. And his last flight basically was on May the 17th, 1977. Wow. In a Vickers VC-10. Yeah, he saw a lot of change. Yeah, He saw a lot of change. So he went from doing about 90 miles an hour in a biplane uh, when he first started flying to the VC-10. A little known fact is um, still, until a few years ago, held the uh, world record for get after Concord. So, you know, if you think about the transition from that time, in one generation, you went from you know, 90 miles an hour to, you know, 540 miles an hour in terms of speed and in terms of time. 
a massive amount of progress. And if you then think about the inherent innovation behind that, you have not just individuals involved, you have basically tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people basically contributing to that process over a, uh, a long period of time. Another small fact, if you think about innovation, innovation has been challenged right the way through history. You know, if you think about uh, just flying across the Atlantic, or you would not think twice an hour about jumping on an airplane. But, you know, when my father was flying uh, Lockheed Constellations backwards and forwards across the Atlantic in, in the early 1950s, airlines of the day, and we're talking Pan Am, BOAC, they, they were losing one major airline every six weeks. Can you imagine today that happening? We just wouldn't fly. Yeah. So the innovation has brought a complete change, if you like, in our perception of how safe it is to fly uh, today. And, you know, we'll continue to do so as we go forward. So here we sit, basically, uh, I think it's, say, what day is it? Is the 8th today, 8th of June? July. July, that's one, <laughs> July, let's get it right. So interesting enough, three days from now, I think I'm right in saying Richard Branson is going to go and there start go. the, uh, you know, the first commercial, you know, space flights. Yeah. He's only doing it on the 11th, so he can beat Jeff Bezos. We know that. A few days yeah, 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 yeah. I would have thought those two would have got together and said, let's ride it together. But oh, no. <laughs> no. The Brits, the Americans, we've got to do it first, guys. You know. So, you know, if we go back, you know, sort of in time, that's the transformation that's gone on. And, you know, I am pretty sure that down the track, you know, there will be a few bumps in the road. But, you know, how are they, you know, in space will be pretty much on the agenda for anyone who could afford it. And it will, you know, down the track, not perhaps me, but certainly my uh, children's and my children's gener generation, you know, they will think nothing about basically adding that to the the vacation bucket list there you go. that, that there we you all go. have. Yeah. yeah, that you make an orbital flight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, now, now today you're in the publishing industry, Easy Press. Maybe you tell us a little bit about what that is. But you would think people would think, wow not much innovation going on in publishing, but they'd be sure would be wrong, wouldn't they? They certainly would. So Easy Press basically is a company I bought, funny enough, after leaving Sofian back in the, the early noughties. Um, I actually bought it in 2005. It was a software publishing company. So it, it, what it did was it created software uh, in those days, it was looking at how you could actually take print magazines and actually trans transition them to effectively HTML websites. What, what attracted me to the company and why I bought it was there were some pretty bright people who effectively founded it a few years before. And what they had done is they had created a, a rules engine for allowing you to be able to map a physical page of a magazine, obviously composited in software. Back in the day, they used to use something called Quark Express, which is still around today, but is, is no longer the uh, primary, uh, primary software platform. It's Adobe InDesign. And this rules engine basically was smart enough to be able to look at a page and work out on the page what the elements of the page it was looking at. So, you know, if we 
bring it forward to today and we're looking at books, it will effectively scan the first thing it sees in a book and it'll find a usually a number that's quite large sitting on the front page. And it will actually determine that that's a, you know, a chapter title. And then it has a rules engine which says, well, if I I identified that, then there are only a, a certain number of features below that, which would actually determine how a book is actually sort of constructed. And if you think about it, you go to any book shop, you know, Barnes and Noble, you get down any, um, any book from Amazon who sells 75% of all the books in the world now. The reality is it's not about the content so much. It's what attracts us to buying a book very often is not just the author, but it's effectively the visual impact of the book. So you've got design, uh, you've got layout, and you've got content. And this rules engine was very good at being able to differentiate between those three key themes. And from that, we could then effectively take content into a neutral format, which we could then convert into XML, and then effectively had a process, again, a rules engine in reverse, which could actually then reapply the styling that you actually needed to be able to automatically create an HTML page of a magazine. And today, of course, they're called eBooks. And that particular piece of thinking really attracted me to EasyPress with a lot of investment from very dedicated people and a lot of very smart people working. We managed to basically build a cloud-based publishing. It's, it's not no touch, but basically it will handle pretty much any book now from manuscript to both print and digital. And the aim of it really, Paul, is to reduce the cost of publishing. And that's what we're, we're doing now. So most people think it costs, you know, thousands of dollars to basically um, get a book published. The reality is that we're reducing that down to, you know, sort of hundreds. And, you know, that's attracting publishers to us to actually do that. Now, that said... Publishing is a very innovation and change-averse industry. Mm. It's a huge industry. Yeah. You know, it's a hundred hundred billion, you know, dollar marketplace. An old industry and a very yeah. old industry. Yeah. So you know, change is is actually the one thing that actually slows down the driver of innovation. People don't want to change. But you know, if you think of what's gone on in the publishing industry, just you know, as an outside observer. EasyPress was the first people in 2008 to actually automatically produce an ebook. Amazon sold 1.8 billion of them last year. Yeah. So, you know, in the space of 12 years, 13 years, we've gone from handcrafted ebooks to, you know, sort of automated ebooks being produced. Some of the largest publishers in the world, are, the largest publisher in the world is, um, is uh, Penguin Random House, and they produce, you know, the majority of their ebooks in North America using our software. Wow, wow. So you mentioned uh, Rules Engine, and I know that I mentioned early when we started on that the company you had uh, founded, which uh, merged with Sofian, to form Sofian, AppliedNet, uh, you had some really sophisticated search technology, but it was there was a Rules Engine in there. And uh, is, is a Rules Engine, tell me your thoughts, Rules Engine, now we, we hear all the time about AI. Would love to just hear your your linkage of those two and your your thoughts on AI as related to innovation. 
Okay, well, just to pick up the point about right in the early days of Sophian. So, you know, one of the things that attracts me to the merger, and it wasn't really a merger, Polydoc acquired. Yeah, this. true. It was an acquisition. <laughs> Let's, Let's be get that serious, right. But, Let's but, be serious. Yeah. There's no such thing as a merger. You're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody has money and somebody needs money. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, what attracted me to the team, you know, led by in, in back in the day, it was, you know, Richard Maddox and Hoob and yourself, was that what you guys are trying to do in Holland with Polydoc was really expert systems, you know, yeah. quality flow and these things were, you know, really a way of taking a process and, you know, if you like codifying it in a way which actually uh, you could then repeat faster and faster and faster and effectively reduce the cost. At EasyPress, we had developed something called knowledge agents, which even today, the best description I could give it is a sort of personal digital avatar. So the idea was, you know, you could effectively codify using semantic technology content that may well be useful to an individual in set circumstances. <laughs> the reason that Sophian, I think, went on to not develop any of those technologies was we got a really clever piece of technology, but nobody could figure out how to sell it yeah. because it was almost, you know, before its time. Yeah. You know, it was a bit like, oh, I've invented the light bulb, but actually I've got no electricity coming to my house, so I can't plug it into something to actually light my house. And, you know, the expert systems that Hoob and the team had and, and you guys were developing in Maastricht were great, but the, the, the market then was quite small for that. So what Sophian became, I think, required a very different type of technology. And if you remember at the time, we stumbled across Accolade, which was, you know, a market leading process. And we just fortuitously had to have some of the smartest people on the planet working for us. And it really wasn't that difficult to be able to put those people to work on solving the problem of creating the first generation of Accolade, and the rest is history. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, just point of correction, in your, you mentioned knowledge agents was part of EasyPress. You meant, you meant AppliedNet, I think. That, that Sorry, was what yeah, you yeah, yeah. AppliedNet. AppliedNet, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that, that basically is, you know, we had smart people working on that. Who but smart people, you know, and you had smart people working on, on the, the Qualiflow and those uh, expert system-led uh, systems. So, you know, bringing that together basically was made a lot of sense. It also helped that we were sort of just at the cusp of the dot-com boom. The market traction for a company like Sophion was well played, you know, at that time. My interest in AI actually comes from a slightly different background. So I originally was going to be a pilot like my dad, something called the Yom Kippur War came along when I went to flight school and put the price of oil to $200 a barrel in response to the Yom Kippur War, and I got washed out of flight school. So mm. I went to university and did a first degree in aeronautical engineering, and I was a pretty good mathematician, you know, engineering mathematician rather than pure mathematician. And my first job was working for the European Space Agency, writing flat earth guidance software for Ariane at a time when uh, NASA was about to launch the, you know, the first of the, the shuttle programs. And my job basically was to take a 300 ton rocket, which would accelerate from 
you know, zero to 30,000 kilometers now. That's 18,000 miles in American money uh, for in about 18 minutes. And we were the first people to, we had beaten NASA to actually taking a, building a program which could actually inject the final payload into geostationary orbit through really something called an apogee window, which in those days, and we're going back to 1980 now, was one kilometer by one kilometer. And we were quite successful at doing that. You know, we did manage to do it, you know, when I was there, we managed to do it four times out of five. And the, the bit of innovation allowed us to do that was that we had the very first real-time computer. So we could actually model our software in real time for that. Now, how I got to the AI point, there is a point here, Paul, it's coming, is that I was working for a French company, Aerospatiale at the time, and they said, look, we can't have anybody working writing this kind of software if they don't have a qualification in computer science. So I was actually sent back to grad school to do the very first computer science course at London University. And on the course, one of my majors, which caught my eye, was something called a module on machine learning and robotics. Mm. It wasn't called AI in those days. It was machine learning robotics. And the guy who ran it was a professor, K.K. George. He had worked for Marvin Minsky, or he'd been a, you know, he'd been working with Marvin Minsky, and he had been a, a postgraduate fellow with Turing back in the 1950s. So these guys had been basically right at the front end of trying to develop what we now know as as AI. Uh, I say it was machine learning in my day. And I had this idea for, you know, developing uh, what it was called Lucy back in the day. It's probably akin to Siri now, basically taking, you know, a Lisp compiler. And there was a, some guys at John McCarthy at MIT that were doing that and building this, uh, putting this on a machine and then sort of writing some software to some of this software to be able to you know, do Q and A type sort of things. So that was the idea. Well, like all good ideas, uh, it hit the sort of, you know, the buffers at the first hurdle. I couldn't get my list compiler to work on a deck PDP 1144. And so after trying for a month to doing that under my tutor, I gave up and went and did the project on something else and got my master's degree. But that got me really interested in AI. And we kept coming back to it as I went through my time. And when we got to uh, applied net, you know, we were very much trying to actually take rules engine to codify basically how content could be streamed to people who were interested in stuff. And Applied Net had done quite a lot of work, actually, with the, in those days, the three-letter services in the UK, looking at very first email traffic uh, around the globe on the World Wide Web. And the Russians very cleverly, I don't know, again, this is probably not common knowledge, but how email traffic very early on in the 1990s was, was actually route around the world was by cost. So... Communications companies would actually say how much they would charge for moving your email from point A to point B. And you would be routed that way based on cost to actually keep the cost of actually sending an email somewhere. And the Russians very quickly picked up on this. And the cheapest place to route all of your email basically was through Moscow. Actually, through the servers, basically, that um, back in the day, it was uh, 
well, the wall was coming down, so it was the forerunner of the FBS. And we were brought in basically to help work with a cybersecurity company to actually, first of all, encrypt the, car, the, um, the emails and then make sure that we could actually route them by keywords, knowing that they would go through Moscow, but they needed to get to somewhere like Hong Kong or um, Singapore yeah. or the Far East and, and try and sort of cover that all up. So, uh, and we were again using technology, which um, ironically had been brought in uh, from the NSA who'd been working on the same thing. So we'd effectively were very early in on that. And that's how we sort of got into building knowledge agents. Since those days, I've kept a fairly active interest in AI. And what I've been interested in is effectively its history. Because if you think of Alan Turing back in 1953, I think it was, you know, he, he defined, you know, one of the first laws of, you know, what constituted an artificial intelligence. You know, he, what it yeah. said was, you know, broadly speaking, if a computer could fool a human into thinking it was another human for more than 50% of the time. And of course, it took literally a generation to actually get to the point where computers could fool people into thinking that uh, they were speaking to another human being. Yeah, it's fairly recent, isn't it? Yeah, it's fairly recent. So much so that actually, my father, who sadly is no longer with us, but you know, uh, in his in his early nineties, I put a Siri in front of him and said, "Okay, Dad, you know, where's the favorite place in the in the world that you like? What what's the most?" And he said, "Oh, I used to like you know flying to Singapore and going to raffles." And I said, well, you know, ask Siri what the weather's like in, at Raffles. And, you know, she gave me the weather forecast and, and he thought this is really great. He's got a woman talking to him. And I said, well, ask Siri to buy you a drink, you know, and yeah, Siri, can you buy me a drink? You know, and it, it was that kind of interaction where he thought he really was talking to a person. Yeah. Well, not just a person, but a very attractive lady, you know, who was speaking to him basically from this device. Interestingly enough, if you talk to people who are really at the front end of this, and there's a, there's a very interesting uh, lady I know called Professor Rose uh, Luckin, who's head of the knowledge labs at University College London, and you know one of the leading universities in the UK that's working on AI for education primarily. She was actually talking uh, about a year ago about actually that bar that Turing sent. It actually isn't really fair reflection of. AI today. And she posited the fact that actually a more correct uh, rule today is if you can get one computer to talk to another computer <laughs> and think it's actually talking to a human. So if you like, we've seen the bar mm. effectively move on in terms of what is now, if you like, the correct level of thinking about this. So, you know, I think if you think about where AI is today, and for those people basically who know a little bit about it, and I'm afraid I'm one of those, AI really is a very complex subject. And I listened to my old friend Hoop. Hoop, you need to phone me, mate. But uh, when he was doing his podcast on AI and machine learning, yeah. and Paul, I found myself violently agreeing with him <laughs> in his, as he described what he thought AI and machine learning was all about today. 
And trust me, it was a very weird sensation. I had to go and have a lie down afterwards. I don't think I've ever agreed with <laughs> It's the first time I know you and he got together. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. I think the only thing we ever agreed on was which was the right wine to buy at dinner. But, you know, it is interesting. You know, we, we even today, and we're now talking 70 years on, nearly 70 years on from when uh, Turing was working on stuff, we really are only on the cusp of what AI can do for us. And, you know, if you think about AI and the way AI is often talked about, I actually sit on a, um, an investment board of a, a small fund. And I'm, I'm not kidding, Paul, I probably see 20 or 30 pitches a year from companies who claim to be using AI for, you know, one process or another. And, and the reality is out of those, and again, all smart companies, they're all claiming they've got, you know, the next best thing since sliced bread. And the reality is there's maybe one or two that come even close mm. to having the gem of an idea, which actually I think could actually make a difference. And very often they're in the medical areas in terms of being able to actually sort of diagnose quicker and faster and cheaper. And, you know, those are the things that basically I think where we've got to. So where I, AI at the moment is, is really it's dealing with the cognitive side of knowledge, how we actually effectively can codify and make things simpler and quicker and cheaper for us. The sort of full AI, you know, the full, you know, if you go and talk to the Rose Luckins of this world, it's about looking at emotional AI. It's how you think, how I think, how I can perceive who you are, what you do. Uh, much more important if you're in the education space about effectively building a, a learning platform to replace teachers that children will actually not treat basically as some kind of, you know, sort of automated abacus. And, you know, uh, that I think is still an awful long way away. In fact, I did a presentation to a knowledge management group uh, a couple of years ago, and somebody said, you know, how long do you think it will be? And I think probably, you know, before you have the sort of, you know, the fully AI platform, which is both cognitive and emotional, and can actually self-improve, I thought it's probably at least one or two generations away. It's sort of where my grandchildren or their children maybe even get to, and it's going to take that long. So, you know, if you look at the what I've actually said in terms of history, you know, my grandmother was, you know, wowed by the first flight in, in December 1903, and yet we wouldn't think about getting on her twice about getting on a flight from Denver to New York. Same is going through the process in terms of spaceflight right now. And the same will be, I think, for, for where AI is going. We, we're sort of at that stage, and I think I was reading a book that uh, who recommended the Harari, Yuval Harari book. You know, AI is at, still at that sort of prophecy stage. Yeah, yeah. And we've yet to move from prophecy to practice and then to fact. So, you know, when you asked me to think of a title for this podcast, I sort of cast back to a time, and again, I'm way older than you, so, you know, I do remember the introduction of the calculator. 
So in 1973, my father had been on a trip to Hong Kong. Uh, he was a BA pilot. No, they weren't BA in those days, but, you know, just sort of BA is the, the name everyone would know. And he was downtown in Hong Kong, and he happened to be looking at a sort of electronic shop, early electronic shop, and he spotted this calculator, a five-function calculator, and he played, played around with it. He thought this is really quite smart, and he thought this is really good. And then he thought of me, and he thought of me sitting my exams. And so he bought this five-function calculator and brought it back to the UK. To give you some idea, in 1973, it cost $75. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can do the maths. It was they quite give a, it to you for free. Yeah. They did not give it to you free. <laughs> and, you know, it was had a, a small, you know, LED display. You know, I think it was 10 digits or something like that. They brought it back. And it, it didn't take me very long to figure out that, oh, I could use this, you know, in my everyday college work. You know, at the time I was doing some of my aeronautics exams. And back in the day, and for older members, when we did an exam you had, and you were in an engineering exam, you had two things to help you. You had a log, log book, a log room book, and you had a slide rule. And all the examination questions basically were set with this. And it was a three-hour exam. You had to answer usually four or five questions from eight questions in that time. And I used a logbook and my calculator. I, yeah, I said, can I bring this in and use it? Yeah, sure, no problems, that's fine. Well, you know, a few of us basically picked up on this. One other guy who was a friend of mine who also dad was a pilot, so he went and got one too for his son. And, you know, the three-hour exam, we were leaving. We actually had a game to see how fast we could actually do the questions and get out of the exam. I think I got it down to about an hour and 15 minutes. And... Not only you know was it quicker, we were getting better answers, more accurate yeah, answers because right. we could go to five decimal places, which you couldn't just couldn't do with a slide rule. And all of a sudden, we saw our marks go up because we were you know we were spending more time thinking about the questions and less time doing about the answers. And you know we got to the end of that academic year, and I remember the college then banned all calculators. Mm, yeah, and we just said. What? You know, within two years, calculators were back in, but the college had to provide them. So you had a standard calculator, which everyone basically had to be familiar with. So why is that example my point? If we come up to where AI is today, you know, we're just at that point where people who don't really know think of it as essentially magic and prophecy those that do know think of, well, it's transitioning basically to helping the heavy lifting that's going on in terms of computational improvements. And, you know, if you think forward 20, 25 years, it will have no more significance or relevance, I believe, the calculator I walked into mm. my very first exam back in 1973. Nobody even thinks of a calculator, you know, if I hold up my smartphone, I've actually got two or three of them on my on there, and they're given away for free. And basically, every kid uses them basically as part of their education, right the way down to the junior end of the education program. The more of the challenge is, funny enough, I used to spend time, you may remember, 
asking our brand new graduates to be able to pick a five digit number and divide by 13. And it was quite remarkable, the number of brand new graduates that couldn't divide, <laughs> you know, long division in their head, you know, without getting a bit of paper out or whooping out their calculator. So, but that's a story I think for another time. Yeah. So, so I think the scale, the generational scale you're talking about, and I think of how hyped AI is right now, right? Everybody's talking about it. And then your experience of sitting on this fund, investing in and seeing how few really have it. I think it's just where we are, aren't we? There's a lot of activity, a tremendous amount of hype, confusion, hope. Uh, there'll be a lot of failure, but we'll get there. I think that's your message, right? We certainly will. And we have some really big problems to solve going for, forward. You know, I'm not just talking about you and I or Sofian or Easy Press. Like that. We've got some, you know, major things in the world which, you know, we're going to have to tackle. You know, climate change is the obvious one uh, for all the Democrats out there. But, you know, the reality is we're going to need this class of technology to help us solve that. We're just starting out on that journey, and I believe we will, you know, have a much cleaner and better planet for us, not in perhaps my lifetime, but certainly in my children and their children's lifetime. And the class of technology which AI represents will have a role to play in that. There will, of course, be, you know, detractors. You know, if I use my own experience, you know, when we started out, back at Applied Net with, back in those days, because it wasn't called the internet, it was called the World Wide Web. What we're doing today couldn't be possible, basically, even going back 30 years, but we don't think anything about it. You know, the fact that even in the last 12 months, you know, the vast majority of, you know, the sort of working forces, certainly in the first world, have transitioned to working at home. And the wheels haven't come off business around the world, you know, Yes, there are those industries which are effectively, you know, sort of people facing. And, um, but, you know, the industry certainly I'm in, and I suspect that Sophie is too, predominantly is really in, in a remote world now. And the challenges will be basically of how we can actually sort of maintain the levels of innovation that that kind of new way of working brings to it. But the technology to do that, you know, was here. And, wasn't necessarily being put to use, but by God, it is now. It is now. And that we probably, you know, like all pendulums that swing one way, Paul, there'll be a certain amount of returning the other way. But, you know, I don't like calling it the new normal, but, you know, the, the future will be a much more liberal way that we actually sort of run our businesses, manage our staff, and still yet to, you know, go out and as shareholders see that our companies are making a profit. And, you know, that is the challenge that your team faces. It's the challenge that my team faces. And I'm pretty sure that we'll manage just fine. That, that's uh, been a fun discussion, James. You know, <laughs> yeah. it reminds me of, of, of what a great storyteller you are. Uh, you well, bring, that's very kind of you. Yeah, you bring, maybe all of them are true. <laughs> and, and it's coming from someone who has a, just a tremendous amount of experience. You're at the center of, of AI in London and England, and there's a lot going on. 
I really want to thank you, James, for sharing perspective, experience. It's going to be fun to watch the coming years, as you said, when it gets from where it is now to this miracle to it's just the free calculator nets that we use every day. Uh, it'll be fun to watch. So really appreciate you joining us. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I, I'm looking forward to someone actually coming up with a, you know, a great widget that can actually take you and I back to when we were 25 again with what we know now. And, yeah. you know, that would be really fun. That would do it, wouldn't it? That yeah. would certainly do it. But, you know, all times are challenging, you know, but with the benefit of historical perspective, are they really as challenging as we think they are uh, in the minute? And I don't think they are. And let's see, with the grace of God, you know, how well we get on going forward. Thank you for your time, Paul. It's been great. It has, James. And so for everybody else, thanks for thanks for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed that. It's been a wonderful uh, bit of time here with James. And James, you have a great day. And to all our listeners, you have a great day, a great week. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.